Hi everyone, this is Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and today our CEO Brian Choi joins me in welcoming Josh Gellert and Michael Murphy of Comerican International. We'll be discussing the current supply chain issues and the woes associated with it, and also taking a look to the future at when this crisis may end. But first, we'd like to welcome all first-time listeners to the Food Institute podcast. We're available on Spotify, Apple iTunes, YouTube, and SoundCloud. You can also find us at foodinstitute.com. So please follow, like, and share as we really try to expand our reach on this podcast. And as always, word-of-mouth referrals tend to be the best way to get people invested. So, so once again, really thankful for all the support thus far and really hopeful that you can share us within your network so that we can continue to grow. So with that all out of the way, we welcome Josh Gellard and Michael Murphy, and I'll allow them to introduce themselves. So why don't we start with you, Josh? Thanks for having us, guys. Uh, nice, nice to be here. Um, my name's Josh Gellert the president of, of Comerican International. So uh, Comerican is a 105-year-old global sourcing company. We source primarily frozen and shelf-stable fruits, vegetables, and seafood. We're part of an importing group called the Gellert Global Group. And as a group, we bring in about 20,000 containers a year into the United States. Last year, we did approximately $1.3 billion in, in sales. And we're sourcing product from over 40 different countries around the world. Um, we sell our fruits, vegetables, and seafood as private label at pretty much every major retailer here in the U.S., from Walmart to Costco to Trader Joe's to Kroger. We also sell um, ingredients to different manufacturers like uh, Nestle or a Campbell's. And then we sell the restaurant chains, the Panera Bread a uh, firehouse subs, Jamba Juice. So we're touching every facet of, of the food industry, helping them source basically ingredients for things that don't grow here in the United States. And how about you, Mike? Uh, good afternoon. I'm Mike Murphy. I'm the Senior Director for Global Supply Chain. So uh, Josh just mentioned our, our global sourcing. So I'm responsible for getting the product here. So our, our freight forwarding, our Origin activity as far as getting on board the vessels has been quite a challenge, but we have discussion today about that and how we're working with our carrier partners, how we're working with our logistics partners, and uh, putting together a flexible supply chain to kind of get us through what I think everyone would agree is a, is a critical time in the global market right now and the way the supply chain has been really stressed all the way to, to the max. And uh, what we're doing is we're successfully moving that product and um, look forward to talking to you about uh, how we're keeping our customers happy and um, also keeping our suppliers happy. So nice to be with you this afternoon. So thanks again, both of you, for coming on the show today. And I think this topic is really timely, and it's something that just about every aspect of the food industry is going to have to contend with. So I think a great place to start with would just be a 10,000-foot view of the global shipping situation right now. Could you guys share your viewpoint on this? I'll throw this one over to Josh, since I see him laughing over there. Yeah, it's uh, and, and I was laughing. I'm, I'm glad we're doing a podcast here, because you should have seen Mike and I uh, a year ago versus how we look today, a, a lot more gray hair and, and a lot less hair. It's been tough, really, really tough. Um, I almost think of it from an analogy standpoint when normally our logistics runs like clockwork, like, like you're driving on a highway, traffic-free, and, and just, just getting to your destination without a problem. You don't even think about it. 
And today it feels like we're in like the worst traffic jam ever and and gas prices are up the wazoo and we're paying a a ridiculous amount at the same time. It is really, really hard and uh, frustrating, stressful um, and costly. Is it fair to say that there's never been a time where you've seen this type of situation to this level? Well, I would say in in really anyone's career, this is, um, you know, We've heard that word unprecedented used before, and, it, and it's truly, we've never been in a position like this before where ships are so full. And then add to that some of the some of the demand that is just off the charts. So you have the supply and demand is, is just 100% tilted toward the carriers right now, and the carriers is a carrier's market. Uh, and they are flexing, you know, their muscles and getting their revenue as much as possible. Um, but then again, they are also experiencing some some really terrible uh, conditions as well when it comes to delays, uh, congestion, uh, the COVID-19 effects on their crew, the COVID-19 effects on the workforce that's unloading their ships, loading their ships. The truck drivers, you know, it's it's everything. It's everything all at once. And it's in the United States, it's in Europe, it's in Asia. We always focus on the Trans-Pacific Asia, uh, and I know a lot of our discussion today will be about that. But it's really a worldwide uh, global shipping uh, crisis at this point. And the infrastructure that was built to support this uh, this global ocean freight, the infrastructure itself is stressed to the max. So think about every single port, every single container, every single ship, full, 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 and overbooked. And then you think about where do you unload this product when a port is 100% full? And you've seen the the ships that anchor, whether they're in Yantian or whether they're in Los Angeles, or it's, it's just everywhere. So I have to say it sounds pretty dismal out there, but I think beyond you know press reports on the West Coast backlogs and the Suez Canal blockage, people might not have a full understanding of how this is affecting ports across the U.S. So I was hoping you could give a little bit of an overview of the situation at U.S. ports right now. I guess I would start to on the West Coast and say um, Los Angeles, Oakland. Um, to avoid those ports, um, there's not too many other options, right? So um, many, many different um companies are, are trying to avoid uh, U.S. West Coast by, by going all water service to the East Coast, uh, by going through Vancouver, Prince Rupert. Um, it's not a pretty picture in uh, Seattle, Tacoma either. So the West Coast is, is jammed up. Now you're starting to see the East Coast. Um, Savannah is, is basically um, severely congested at the moment. I think the other question is, where isn't there congestion? Josh, as a as a one point three billion dollar company, is there a preferential treatment as a large organization? Yeah, it's it's, it's been uh, a real challenge. I mean, when when you think back on on what was causing this issue, and and Mike hit on it, talking about demand being a big driver of things, and and it really gets back to to COVID in many ways, where. Um, COVID hit, at least in the U.S., everybody was really nervous what this meant. And then for the most part, with government stimulus, white collar jobs, being able to work from home, people maintained their income 
and they didn't have a lot to spend that money on from a service perspective. They couldn't go on vacation, couldn't go to a baseball game or whatever they like to do. And so what are they going to do with all that money? They're going to buy stuff. And a lot of that stuff comes into the United States on containers. And so all of a sudden, everybody's trying to ship into the U.S. And it's really hard. And for us in the food business, um, you know, food is, is a part of the shipments coming in. We're also competing for space with clothing, electronics, Peloton bikes, things like that. The real challenge we have in the food business is you think about containers and the value of a container is small. We could ship containers, $20,000 is is the value of that container. You've got electronics, Peloton bikes in there. You know, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, very different. So for us, a thousand dollar, couple thousand dollar increase or even more increases in ocean freight is really punitive on the food side where someone with better margins in clothing, electronics, things like that, they can, they can uh, manage those higher costs a little bit better. Obviously food's important. We need to feed everybody. So um, for us, the way we've been able to manage through it and, and leveraging our scale has been important. Uh, Mike's done a great job of developing partnerships with the steamship lines, with our freight forwarders. Um, we are within our world, a, a major player and one that they want to give preferential treatment to that's helpful to a point. We still are paying much more for freight than we were a year and a half ago. Um, but the key is for us to get onto the ships and Mike's done a great job for the most part of being able to manage through that. Um, but it's really, really tough. And, and there's too many people fighting for too little space right now. So Josh, you and I were were chatting, uh, last week and you shared some frightening statistics on cost of, of containers for certain items. Can you share with our audience the the magnitude, the difference in terms of of freight, the the cost of freight of containers? Can you share a few examples? Yeah, sure. I I think the the story I was was telling Brian had to do with a uh, container of canned seafood. Um, Normally, and it's coming from Asia to the U.S., and our customer really needed this container. Uh, They were running out of product. Um, normally this container might cost us $2,500, $2,500 to get to the United States. And Mike is working on it because we're feeling a lot of pressure to get this one container here and we can't get a reasonable price. And weeks are going by and our customers running out of stock and we felt a real obligation as we do with our customers to make sure we keep them in stock as best we can during this time. And so we we're willing to invest in this container to get it here. And uh, when Mike told me how much it would cost to get it here, he said, Josh, this, this broke a record for me. The most I've ever paid for a dry container. Um, and it was $18,000 to get a container here um, from Asia to the U.S. And he said, this is a record I never wanted to break. Um, Certainly painful for us. Our, our customer works with us and, and helps cover those costs, but it's much more, you know, $2,500 to $18,000. There's no way you can pass all that on to consumers. 
but that's part of where we're viewing this as a long-term and we've got to make those investments from time to time. Um, this one was really dramatic and, and painful um, for sure. And, and I would imagine as, a, as an import company, when you, when you establish uh, programs with various retailers or food service clients, they're, they're usually done on an annual basis. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, you're right, Brian. It, it, annual contracts, the, uh, the timing of those annual contracts for our business typically tie to harvest seasons for different crops that we might bring in. Um, so that timing doesn't always tie to contract negotiations for ocean freight. So we do our best to estimate it. And typically in the course of a year, ocean freights may go up a couple hundred dollars, may go down a couple hundred dollars. You win some, you lose some. The situation we're in now where it's thousands and thousands of dollars more is really just an unprecedented, uh, almost a force majeure type situation. Um, we've had to go conversations with our customers and, and explain the situation to them. And, and by and large, I've been really uh, happy that our customers have really been true partners to us. They understand the situation and are willing to allow us to pass along the price increase, our cost increase. And we've been very transparent on what it is. Um, and for them, they in turn will pass it on to consumers in, in terms of food inflation and things like that for the most part. Um, and it's real. It's real costs out there. And, and, you know, our margins are so thin. It's not something that we would typically could could absorb. We're absorbing some of it in, in some cases. But um, really, our, our customers have stepped up and, and have been terrific partners during this time. In terms of the type of uh, customers, are, are you are you seeing that the most willingness to to kind of meet you in the in the middle coming from um, you know some of the larger players, or is it really across the board? Like in in that that saying, okay, we understand the situation, we're willing to work with you, we'll we'll meet you halfway. Is that you know? Uh, can you give a sense on like what you're seeing on the customer side? Yeah, it's been uh, from the largest retailers in the world in the world to uh to the small you know industrial customer it's it's been across the board and i think people understand and certainly covid was such a the the start of all this and they understand how unprecedented it is um and i think with our relationship with these these customers they they understand and and are willing to work with us, which has been very helpful during this time, for sure. Yeah, Brian, if I, if I could add to that, Josh and Brian, it's just that if, if we've demonstrated, which we have, that we can continue to ship and we can continue, despite all these obstacles, to get our customers the product they need to sell to their, to their customer, then we're doing the right thing. We're, we're either going around the barriers, we're going through the barriers, whatever we have to do, but then we have that discussion with them and we, you know, it's the difficult discussion, but they've arrived at the same conclusion that we have is the world has changed. It's not, it's not like it used to be. So we could wish that we could easily do our logistics set and forget. We could wish that, but it's not reality. So for us to plan, uh, you know, the supply chain 
adjust where we have to and get on board the ships and get here uh, with the product that our customer wanted, you know, we've demonstrated that reliability. And so that is a partnership because what do those retail customers of ours need? They need a reliable supplier. And that's basically the role we have to fill. We can't sing a sad song and say that we failed. We have to get it here and we have to figure out how to do that. And we've been able to demonstrate that, you know, every week, every month. And then when we have that difficult conversation with them about our costs, uh, it comes as no surprise because uh, that dialogue has been going on for a while. And, and uh, there's very few uh, segments of the, of, the, uh, of the economy that don't understand what's happening right now in global shipping. It's very few people are surprised when you're, when you're talking about what's really happening out there. I, I'm curious from a, from a risk management standpoint, as you guys look to, to 2022, how are you thinking about risk now um, and looking into, into the future? Like what are, what are some strategies that you guys are looking at to help make sure business runs as smoothly as possible? Certainly uh, storing product here in the U.S. has actually always been part of our uh, strategy per se, Brian. There's always uncertainty in, in, uh, global logistics and having some safety stock in here, a forecast may be wrong, something may happen. Uh, we always like to have safety stock here. Um, typically we have three months plus of safety stock for our customers. What happened to us, like everybody, when COVID hit and there was the run on supermarkets, we were selling a week's worth, or sorry, a month's worth of product in a week. So our safety stock got eaten up so quickly with the spike in demand. And then ever since then, we haven't been able to get enough product here to backfill that inventory. Certainly our plan is to get back to that safety stock level. I think you talked about our size and scale. One advantage we have for sure is being a billion dollar plus company. We've got the financial resources to manage the working capital demands of that safety stock. Um, that's something we do really well, and, and a lot of the major retailers and, and companies here in the U.S. depend on us for that. Um, it's part of the services we have. Certainly, our goal is to get back to that safety stock position. We've just got to weather the storm, and demand will eventually start dropping back down to normal levels as people start spending their money on services and entertainment again. Um, and then it'll be a chance for us to, uh, to fill back on, on the storage and, and get our inventories back to the level that we like to have them at. So we just have one last question, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, so you might not have a perfect answer for this, but I do believe the answer to this question is what just about everyone is tuning in for today. And that is, when will this end? You know, part of it is an estimate and part of it is um, based on, you know, empirical data. So we know how full the ships are uh, and we know what the bookings are. So I'm going to say that um, I, I project that right through the end of this calendar year, uh, we're going to see um, a, basically full ships and we're going to see a con, you know, continuation more of the same. What happens between you know, the end of the uh, holiday uh, period into Chinese New Year um, does it start to wane and start to, you know, balance out? Hard to say. 
because there's there's something else at play here besides you know the congestion and everything else we mentioned. Um, it, it's what's going to basically what's going to happen, um, you know, with the carriers. What are they going to do next? Will they? Will the carriers renew contracts with with their uh, shippers? Will will the carriers uh, redeploy, you know, their their assets differently? We have no idea if the carriers will uh, figure out, um, you know, a, a new schedule, a new voyage deployment. You know, their containers, um, which are scarce. How will they redeploy their containers? Will they penalize people for shipping into the middle of uh, the continental U.S. or into the middle of Europe? Because they don't really want their containers there. They want them on the ports. So all those things come into play, and we have no idea. And that will affect, um, you know, ships and how full they are. I think this is a, a, a great time to uh, explain, you know, what we're going through. And we appreciate the ability to, you know, have this dialogue. And the more people that know about it, the better because uh, a lot of collaboration happens uh, as this crisis expands and, and people's awareness of it expands. You know, we rethink a lot. We rethink about the different uh, ways that we would get the cargo here in the first place, how long we would store it, uh, where we would offer pricing, where are we the most competitive, where do our customers want us to be. There's a lot of dialogue that takes place when uh, we, you know, make sure that everybody's aware of the constraints and the problems. And um, we go in with our eyes open. So I think that's a, a very good thing that came out of this. People have their eyes open to what's happening. So I really appreciate your time today, Mike, Josh. You know, it was really an interesting topic. And like I said, I think a lot of people in the food industry are definitely interested in the current situation, but might not know enough about it. So really appreciate your viewpoints. Uh, for any of our listeners that want to learn a little bit more about Comerican, where should they go? Yeah, I would go to our website, Comerican.com. And on there, there's links to, to email us. So listeners, you can go down into the episode description and take a look there to find a link to Comerican's website, and you'll be able to learn more about the company there. And I think that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Food Institute podcast. If you like the show, please follow, like, and share. And please visit foodinstitute.com to learn more about membership, advertising, and sponsorship opportunities. And while you're on the website, you can also take a look at some of our free resources. We update the Food Institute focus daily with multiple trending news items from the day in the food industry. And I'd also like to throw a little shout out to my coworker Kelly Beaton and his FI Fast Break podcast. If you're looking for the top trending news in the food industry in a four-minute format, look no further. New episodes typically release on Thursday, so you can find that at foodinstitute.com as well. So on behalf of the Food Institute and Brian Choi, this is Chris Campbell signing off. <laughs>